Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you. It's been a couple of months. I think uh, Kyle and I were talking beforehand. I think this is the first time we've actually been in this room at the same time together. I'm usually, I'm usually one of the people that get called in when he's out of town. So this extra, uh, he'll be, he'll be um, uh, giving me a critique afterwards. He's here to take notes, and uh, yeah, that's great. Now, I, um, before I uh, begin this morning, <clears throat> I am afraid I, I have a confession um, that I need to make. Uh, you kind of have a right to know this. If I'm going to stand up here, you should, uh, you should be aware of this. It's not something I want to say, but um, I'm afraid I, I kind of have to. <clears throat> I hate the mall. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, re- I really do. It doesn't matter. Rivertown Crossing, Woodland, doesn't matter. I just, I hate the crowds. I hate the, uh, the prices. I hate the consumers. I just, I hate everything about it. Um, I'm that guy that if I'm going to go into the store at all, I go in with a list and I've pre-planned my route and I get in with the, you know, in and out with the fewest steps possible, preferably with like, uh, I scan my own whatever, bag it up and get out talking to as few people as possible. Um, that's the introvert in me coming out. I don't know if there's a 12 step program for me, but, uh, I'm guessing I'm probably not alone in the room. We won't do a raise of hands cause I don't want you to embarrass anyone, but, yeah, it's a it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult uh, world out there if you uh, don't like hanging around crowds and people. My wife likes to drag me downtown to the festivals every year, and I always have a good time once I'm there. But the the ride down and getting in the car is the worst. Um, I will say this though: if I have to find myself at the mall, um, it is good for one thing. The thing I do actually really enjoy, and that is watching people. I love watching people. People are infinitely interesting. Uh, their stories, whether I know what they are or not, at least the stories I manufacture watching them, you know, oh, they're having a fight. I wonder what that's about. Um, infinitely interesting to me. And I think that's probably the, the shopping mall's greatest contribution to Western civilization, <laughs> is that you can go there and see just about anything at, uh, at, any, at any time of day. Um, but that said, there is actually, if you like watching people, there's actually a better place to go. I don't know if you know this. It's a fairly well-kept secret. But if you enjoy seeing people at their best and their worst and most interesting, there is a better place to go than the shopping mall. It's, it's actually the, uh, your local uh, parable. Nope, next slide. Go on. You can move ahead. The, your local comic con. So we're into a comic book convention. Okay, we have a, we have a, a fan or, or two in the room. Uh, yeah, I spend actually a lot of time at comic cons, um, which is a little bizarre because you wouldn't think it's necessarily part of the profile. But uh, I have talked in the past about, in fact, several of you have talked to me about it already, my, my book that came out in January, The Bellowing of Cain. But what you don't know is... Um, or probably don't know, is that I'm also an author of young adult fantasy. I have a couple of volumes of that out, third one coming out this fall, and I spend uh, a dozen weekends a year sitting at comic conventions all over the Midwest hawking my wares. And, uh, <coughs> yeah, that's, that's me with the bird on my head. The comic convention is the perfect place for watching people. Because you get the best, you get the worst, you get the beautiful, the strange, the unsettling. You discover that there are people in this world who should not wear a Spider-Man costume. And yet do. Proudly. And I'm like, hey, good on you, man. I don't have that kind of self-confidence at all. But you, you find it all. Now, say, so why do I tell you all of this? Because of this. Today's parable, you're in the series on the parables of Christ And today's parable, which you already saw, the so-called parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18, is actually this sort of story. It's a story 
of people watching. Uh, it's a case study in it, in fact. But honestly, today, it's, it's actually hard to call what we're about to meet today a parable because really nothing happens in it. It's, not, it's almost not a story. It's, it's, the, it's almost a recounting of, of an event. I mean, there are no, like, farmers sowing seed. There's no, like, sons running off to spend their father's wealth in a far country. You don't have stewards running around with talents of gold trying to be... You don't have action. There's ju it's just this thing that... Jesus, in a sense, sort of witnesses and describes. It's almost as if, I mean, this isn't really what happens, but it's almost as if Jesus goes to the shopping mall of his day, which would, of course, have been the temple, which was actually kind of a disturbing thing because we know they had kind of turned the temple into a kind of shopping mall, and Jesus, you know, seeks to undo that at one point. But it's almost like he goes to the mall of the day and kind of sits on a bench and describes for us a lesson that he derives from different people there. Now, I have to confess I've misled you a touch because Jesus really isn't interested in giving us a lesson today. Jesus did not utter the parables, these great stories, for, say, the same reason Aesop did with his fables. You know, Aesop, with his animal stories and things, lived 500 years before Jesus. When Aesop gave his, his, his stories, they were intended to give us clever moral tidbits, common sense wisdom, you know, do this, not that, beware of, you know, the, the fox in the hen house, that sort of thing. More like Solomon's Proverbs than anything Jesus ever said. Jesus, however, told his stories for a much more scandalous purpose. Jesus' core message, I mean, the thing he was really, really focused on and talked about most in his ministry, his message was not one of moral improvement. I mean, we associate Jesus with great words. What's the greatest command? Love God, love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Very important, very central, definitive to the law. But that wasn't Jesus' central message. He only says that once or twice in response to a question, what's the greatest command? Well, here it is. When Jesus was sort of left to give his own message, it was actually something very different, something much more subversive and dangerous, so much so they killed him for it. His message that he was on about constantly was this. Repent. The kingdom of God is near. It has come close. 125 times in the gospel alone, 10 times in the Sermon on the Mount alone, Jesus talks about this kingdom coming near. The message that God's kingdom has come to earth once again. And here was the shocking part of it, the part that got people really upset over, was that this kingdom has come near in himself. That he is the fulfillment of that kingdom. In fact, the means by which any of us will ever enter it. That's what made his message so dangerous and scandalous. And there is no understanding anything Jesus said without understanding that Jesus was talking constantly about a kingdom that is coming, that has broken, is breaking into the world of which he is the center. So this is just as true when it comes to parables. He spoke parables not to make us simply better, wiser, more virtuous people, but because he wanted us to understand what the kingdom of God was actually like. This is why so many of the parables begin with those words. You've heard them already in the series. How do many of them begin? The kingdom of God is like. They are parables about the kingdom, telling us what it's like. And even though today's parable does not begin with that statement, it clearly is one of these kingdom stories. We'll be in Luke 18 here in a few seconds, but if you were to go back to Luke 17, 
you would discover kind of the context. Why did Jesus tell this story? He's actually having a conversation with the Pharisees, and they actually ask him, when will the kingdom of God come? And the disciples get involved. Jesus offers some pretty troubling teaching about the nature of the kingdom, and then jumps into several parables that are meant to sort of explain what he's been talking about. But he's very clear all through the Gospels. Not everyone is going to understand these stories. Not everyone has eyes to see or ears to hear what the kingdom of God is really like. Frankly, not everyone really wants to know. A true case of be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. And the kingdom doesn't turn out to be the kind of thing we expected it to be. But only those who have ears to hear and eyes to see are going to understand. So I invite you this morning, let us be that kind of people. So now when we come to Luke 18, Jesus begins, he tells us that this parable, this story is told against those, and I quote, those who think themselves righteous and look down on others. That's who Jesus is telling this parable to. Those who think themselves righteous and look down on others. Now, honestly, this could be anyone in Jesus' audience. This could be... uh, Jews in his audience looking down on Gentiles, on the foreigners. It could be the Pharisees in their midst looking down on fellow Jews. It could be Greeks or Romans who were looked down upon the Jewish people. You know, they were a conquered people at this point. It could be anyone. It could even, it could even be us this morning. We who at times look down our noses at our neighbors, our colleagues, our relations, even perhaps our fellow worshipers. You may have even had the thought already this morning, even in this room. Look at them. They get their hands up. Or they don't. Or they're different. Look how they're dressed. Look how they're acting. We do this. We could very well be the audience Jesus is talking about. Well, let's see. Luke is the only one of the, of the four gospel writers who records this story. And his placement of it is a little ironic. He, he may have, Luke may have done this intentionally because the story that actually follows this. Remember, Jesus tells this story directed at those who look down on others because if they think they're righteous, they think they're better. And the story that follows it, ironically, is the story of the, the children that want to come to Jesus. And the disciples won't let them because they're only children. Were you even listening? Did you even hear? Even Jesus' own disciples, be careful before you laugh. Even Jesus' own followers at times, lack the ears to hear and the eyes to see. There's a warning here. Let us do better this morning. Let us have ears to hear. Like many of Jesus' parables, you've seen this already in this series, and you certainly are going to see it in weeks to come, even as early as next week. This parable is structured like, it's called a syncresis, a comparison of two opposites. In the coming weeks, you're going to see Jesus do this a lot. You're going to hear the wheats versus the weeds. You're right, of the tares. You're going to see a wise builder versus a foolish builder. You've already heard about a, a son who stays home and a son who wanders off into a far country. Jesus loved to do these comparisons of opposites. Well, this is another one of those stories. Jesus is going to compare two men. In fact, the first line of the parable is this. Jesus tells the story, two men go up to the temple to pray. There's our increases. Two men, two men, very different men. They're going to go up to the temple to pray, and we're going to see something. We're going to witness something because both of these men of who they are and what they're going to do. Now, we're told they go up to pray, and I don't want you to be under the mistaken illusion that this is actually a parable about prayer. Prayer actually doesn't have much to do with this. I mean, it's not a parable about prayer. A few weeks back, you guys have come through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry, 
Thank you, Lord's Prayer. And in that series, that really had prayer, you know, like when you pray, do it like this. There was an instructional component to it. Prayer here, this isn't that kind of parable. Prayer here isn't like a, you know, here's how you pray. Prayer here is merely the act that is going to reveal what is in the heart of each of these two men. And it's what in the, what's in their heart that you need to pay attention to. That's the point. And Jesus selects two, as you'd expect, two men from near opposite ends of the social spectrum. So before we consider what it is they do or what happens, what little action is here in the story, let us meet both of these men. So now here's the setting. Like you enter with me now. We're sitting, we're at the temple. Imagine the smell now. You've got the, the burning flesh on the altar. You got the sounds of the trumpets, the moving people. You got the men gathered here, the women gathered there, the Gentiles gathered over there. You've got all the action, the hubbub, the, the going down there on the Temple Mount. And we're sitting there, and in walks with Jesus two men. The first goes right to the center of the crowd, right to the front, and lifts his hands. He is our local Pharisee. Now, we tend to have a very skewed image of what the Pharisees were actually like, and I think that's, that's probably true because of their interactions with Jesus. They often come out like smelling badly having interacted with Jesus. And so we tend to think of them very negatively. In fact, we tend to, the word, we use the word pharisaical or a Pharisee as, as really like an insult, meaning like a legalist or a hypocrite or something like that. It's like we put them in the same category as, as politicians, you know, particularly of the party that you didn't vote for, right? I mean, it's just, it's just a universal insult. But culturally, Pharisees actually would have been very highly regarded by the average Jew. They would have been, you know, the, 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 what any Jewish listener would have expected to be praised for their religious devotion and commitment. I mean, they're the way, they, they thought about the Pharisees the way you might think, I'm terribly sorry to do this, but the way you might think about, you know, your pastor. Because, and I, I'm sorry if I compared Kyle to the Pharisees, that was not the point of the comparison. That's not, the point is, you would think, well, if anybody is going to be praised for devotion, commitment, for their piety, for their godliness, for their obedience, well, it would be, you know, it would be a, like a pastor, right? That's not an unreasonable expectation. Well, that's how the Jews would have thought about the Pharisees of their day. If anyone could expect to be praised, it would be these religious elite for their godly behavior. And indeed, we're going to see before we're done that it is not the Pharisee for the Pharisees' godly behavior or actions that he's critiqued. It's for something else. Well, let's leave him standing there at the front of the crowd because some, there's another person who has entered. He has snuck in from the back. He is our publican. Now, that's the old King James word for it. That's what I grew up reading was the King James and the publican. Now, you might tend to think of a publican, as, as I often did, as, as a barkeep, like literally the keeper of a pub. But in Chaucerian English, it really is an expression of like a, a public servant, of someone who works in a public office. The more modern translation, tax collector, gets right at it. That's exactly what he is. He's a tax collector. I tend to like the word publican because it, it sounds nice. Publican. Publican. I like to say it. So actually, the publican or the tax collector in that Roman context would actually have been exactly what it sounds like. This is a person working for the Roman government collecting Roman taxes from his own Jewish countrymen. Now think about what that means for a minute. It probably mean, it meant the same to the Jews as it probably means to you. Someone who takes your hard-earned money away and far too much of it. You can get a sense of how they might, a first century Jew might have thought of a tax collector. If you consider how tempted you would be if an IRS auditor were to show up at the door of your house and knock on it, how tempted you would be to shut off the lights, close the curtains, go hide in your bedroom, and pretend you're not there like it's Halloween. 
In fact, they were seen as the lowest of the low in their culture, men who were hated as thieves, Roman sellouts, tools of government oppression. In fact, the Mishnah, which is one of the earliest Jewish commentaries on the Old Te- what we call the Old Testament, the Mishnah actually classified tax collectors with murderers and robbers, people that you are not even obliged to tell the truth to. Like if they ask you, you are allowed to lie to them. Like, no, I, I got no money. Try my neighbor. He's rich. This whole parable now seems to consist of these two men from very different social strata, both now going up to the temple to pray. And you notice when it said up, it means that literally. In, the ancient, in, in ancient Jewish, you know, that, that geography in times, when they said up, they literally meant it. Up for us is like a compass point. Like you go up to the cabin because it's in the UP. But for them, they meant literally because Jerusalem sits on hills. So to go up to the temple was literally that. <laughs> up to the temple. So these two men have gone up to the temple and are now standing there ready to offer their worship, their prayer. Well, now that we've met them, let's see what they pray. Let's turn back to our Pharisee and, 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 and read what his prayer is. But before I show it to you, I'd like you to just note, this is important, I'd like you to take a note of this. I would like you to note how briefly his posture is described and yet how long his prayer is. Okay, take note of that. Right, so here it is. Here's what he says. The Pharisee, standing by himself, there you go, that's what you have it. Standing by himself, thus prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, that I am not an extortioner, unjust, an adulterer. Oh, look, even like this tax collector back here, hiding behind the curtain. I'm not like him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. Now, we'll pause here for a second and just offer a curious, this is a parenthesis. You don't even have to remember this. This is just for those who would consider themselves the Bible geeks in the room. There's actually a bit of a translation question here on his posture, on that standing. Various English translations translate it differently. You've just seen here, he stood by himself as if they're sort of aloof, away from everyone else. But you could also equally translate it, uh, he stood and prayed about or to or of himself. Like he's actually talking about or to himself. The manuscript evidence between them is almost evenly split. Put your money down, make your choice, like the English translations do. Point is, at the end of the day, it it doesn't matter. Regardless of which one is the correct reading, you certainly get the image. This man, his whole prayer, his whole posture, everything about him communicates aloofness, separation from others. And the very first words, going back to the, the passage, his prayer, his very first words confirm it. God, I thank you that what? I am not like other people. Now I want you to note that his error here is not, or as we'll discover, his error is not in the actions that he has performed. His, his tithing, his fasting, those are merely the activities required by the Jewish law. He's a good Jew for doing that. The problem isn't even his offering of this, this list of good behavior as part of his petition to God. That itself was, wasn't a problem. I mean, it's not uncommon in Scripture. You'll find many people doing this. David does this all through the Psalms, the, quote, Psalms of Innocence, where David will offer, God, I've been faithful. I've done this and this and this and this and this, so why am I suffering? Job, in the book of Job, spends almost the entire book doing the same thing. I've been godly. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Somebody else screwed up somewhere. I don't deserve what I'm getting. In fact, even before this very chapter, Luke 18, is done, you will meet the, the we call him, the rich young ruler who will come to Jesus asking what, what do I have to do to be saved? And we'll put his, the whole weight of his salvation on the fact that he, well, yeah, I've kept all the commandments since I was a child. 
The articulation of the fact that you have been obedient to God as best you can, kept the covenant, is that's not what he's critiqued for either. This is not a parable spoken against vigorous obedience to the commands of God. That would have been a very ironic parable for Jesus to give, given how obedient he intended to be to his father. No, the issue here is something very different. It's not what he has done. It's not even necessarily what he says. It's what's going on in his heart. More specifically, the kind of worshiper he thinks he is compared to the man behind him. It's all about who you compare yourself to. In essence, what he has done is he has come to God, and if I can summarize his prayer, it actually looks something like this. God, I'm not like others, so, dear Lord, give me what's fair. Give me what I deserve. My prayer is that you, since I've been faithful, that you will do to me what is right and good and give me, you know, give me what I deserve. But I want you to understand, this is a prayer that really only works when you're comparing yourself to other people. Because you can always find somebody that's worse off than you. You can always find somebody that has fewer resources, is more socially marginalized, is less intelligent, uglier, not as well-dressed, you know, doesn't have as stunning a personality. You can always find somebody to compare yourself to where you will come off smelling like roses. Well, that's essentially what he does. If you compare yourself to others, you can come off looking pretty good. Now, to understand the real problem here, let's pause, leave him there with his prayer, and turn around and listen, because the, there's another man praying back here, half hidden by the curtain, our publican. He's also going to pray a prayer. And before I tell you what it is, I'd like you to, I'd like you to note now, like I told you, the opposite. I would like you to note how many words are given over to his posture versus how short his prayer is. He's the complete opposite of our other man in every way. This is what he says. Our tax collector now, standing afar off, won't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beating himself on the breast says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. He's done. He stands at a distance, almost as if he is if he's ritually unclean, like he doesn't deserve to be there. He is there without rights, and he knows it. His prayer even has strong sacrificial overtones, almost as if he's saying like, you know, Lord, that you see the priests over there offering that sacrifice? That sacrifice there on the altar right there. Let that count for me. Let that be my sacrifice too. His very presence there is an act of faith because he doesn't belong. But he has embraced the fact that God offers forgiveness. And as a result, he comes to the temple to embrace God's forgiveness on God's terms alone and nothing else. See, unlike the Pharisee who compared himself to other men and came off so favorably, this man knows he can't do that. There's nobody he can compare himself to. That would be folly. He, socially, is the forsaken one. He is the marginalized. He is the hated. He is the abandoned. He is the great sinner. All men look down on him, and in their eyes, he is without hope, lost entirely, unredeemable. But he knows in his heart that there is really only one whom he has failed. And so he too makes a comparison, but it's a very different comparison than the Pharisees. I am not like other people. His prayer, in essence, makes a different comparison. I am not like you, oh God. I compare myself to you, and all I can ask for is mercy. 
when you compare yourself to others, you can come off favorably well. But when you compare yourself to God, well, nobody comes off well in that comparison. Comparing your righteousness to God's righteousness is a devastating thing. Comparing your holiness to God's holiness can, can do nothing but leave you broken and humble. See, unlike the Pharisee, this man, our publican, does not cry for his just dessert because he knows exactly what that is if it's going to be given. He knows what he will receive. Rather, his cry is for mercy. Kyrie eleison. Lord, be merciful. In truth, the only true prayer anybody can ever pray. Lord, have mercy. Now, before I tell you how this ends, these two men show us something rather uncomfortable and unexpected about God, about ourselves, about them. So I want to give you the bad news before I give you the good news. See, I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor. Knew this stuff from my earliest youth. I was on God's side, you know, for the whole thing. I spent most of my life sort of understanding and reading Jesus' teaching, specifically the parables, as intended to give me kind of comfort to kind of, you know, affirm me because I'm one of the good guys. I'm on Jesus' side. I'm one of the disciples. I'm a Jesus follower. So, of course, when Jesus offers these words of condemnation, who's he aiming them at? But I'm one of the disciples, so I'm with Jesus. As I tell the little children, they're not allowed to come. I had to figure out, it took me a long time to realize that what really is going on is that Jesus is not so much affirming me as appraising me. The older I get, the more I realize that Jesus speaks not to the insiders and the outsiders, to his own and to others, but Jesus seems to speak to all people, even and especially his own disciples, as if the choice to follow him is ever before us. Not a choice that you made some point in your past, in your childhood, when you were a teenager and threw a stick on the fire, when you were in college and walked an aisle somewhere, but now here today that the crucible of discipleship is something that is born today or not at all. That repentance, that faith, that obedience are not features of my testimony from my past, but they're the demand of the moment today, here the Jesus warnings are not directed at those out there or even me sometime before I got saved. They are relentlessly aimed at me right here now today in the midst of my current spiritual apathy. My recurrent religious resistance and my present pious pride. I have had to reach the conclusion over the years of my life more than I'd like to that I'm a pretty mediocre disciple. I'm distractible. There are competitions for my attention in life. I don't do things well. And the need for mercy is not something that I got past because of a prayer I prayed when I was young. It rather defines my whole present. We never, as Christians, ever get past the publican's prayer. We never reach a point where the cry for mercy does not define and describe us.
In fact, the church, and I don't mean the story here, church, I mean like the big capital C, the church throughout all of history, the church has always known that in, in its best moments that the cry for mercy is not merely the cry of the unconverted sinner, it is the cry of the most converted saint. In fact, if you were to go to a more sorry, a liturgical church this morning where they wear robes and light candles and things like that, you would say the Kyrie eleison, the Lord be merciful. We, the community of the redeemed, would say it. Lord be merciful, Lord be merciful, Lord be merciful every single week. Have you noticed that the very people that we most revere in church history, pick your favorite saint, pick the person you look up to in church history the most, whether it's, you know, St. Augustine, St. Francis, Thomas Akempis, Catherine of Siena, can be someone from the Protestant tradition, but John Bunyan, Martin Luther, John Wesley, take your pick. The people who are holiest, the ones who spend their most time with God, talking about God, the ones that we consider to be the great people of the faith are the ones who actually talk most about their need for mercy. It's almost as if, you know, by analogy, it's almost as if if you want to stand far away from God and you just want to go do your own thing, fine. You can think yourself as pretty good and just kind of go on with your life and kind of ignore the whole thing. But you get close to God. You spend time getting into proximity with divine holiness. Your sin will not become less apparent, but more. It will grieve you more. The offense of it will become greater to you. The closer you get to holiness, the more you realize you lack it. It's like you go earn your PhD in something, and part of what that learning, getting a PhD learns is how little you know about medicine or law or theology. You become sort of less knowledgeable the more you get into it. It's only ignorant people who, who get their theology degrees off the internet that know everything. <laughs> you go study anything in detail, you're going to discover how little you know. You get close to God, your own sin is going to become far more visible. To you Again, be careful what you wish for. We talk about being in the presence of the Spirit, in the presence of God, and well, we should. But the truth is, we may not like it as much as we think we will when we actually endure it. Because you get in close proximity with divine holiness, I promise you, like Isaiah, you're going to be unable to keep your feet. It will drive you to your knees. That is what true holiness does. This is what the publican understands that the Pharisee does not. The Pharisee thinks he has gotten past his need for divine mercy. He congratulates God on having such a, a great servant as himself. He doesn't realize that he stands in as much need of mercy as the publican back behind the curtain. Not because he's literally worse off than the, the publican. I don't know which one of the two is the greater sinner. How would I tell that? God alone knows such things. It's not the point. His prayer should have gone like this. Oh God, I have sought my best to keep your commands. Yes, I fast and I tithe. I have truly sought to obey. Lord, be merciful. That should have been the Pharisees' cry. Both men have the same prayer. Whether cultural sellouts or religious hypocrites, mercy is needed by all. That ought to cause us to pause and wonder. Is it possible that the most loathsome and heinous person I know might in fact understand the central point of the gospel better than me, a career Jesus follower? Yeah. It might even be to be expected. It's a vivid illustration about something about this kingdom. Central, central and defining. You can see it in the very last line of the parable. This is how it ends. I tell you, says Jesus, this man, our publican friend, goes down to his house justified. Not like the other. 
The story ends. This is the good news. I told you it was coming. The story ends with the hopeless, lost, broken man being justified and reconciled to his God. This parable is about the lavishness of divine forgiveness, the divine embrace which is offered to all. That with God in this kingdom, even publicans can be redeemed. But there's more. This is the unstated point. That in this kingdom with God, we're tempted to miss that not only publicans, but even Pharisees can be justified if they will acknowledge their need for it. The kingdom does exist, not just for terrible tax collectors, but for wishy-washy, lukewarm, easily distracted disciples like me. We have a common prayer. Lord, be merciful. And the only condition here mentioned in this story for receiving this justification is that you're honest with yourself before God. That you stop putting on pretenses, that you take the mask off and recognize that divine mercy is what we need, not divine fairness over what we deserve. Who could endure that? But we can be forgiven, justified, restored, made whole, not because we are virtuous, but because God is merciful to those who ask. And so this parable today invites you, invites me, invites us all, Pharisees and publicans alike, to lay all of the ugliness shallowness and banality of our lives before our Father with confidence that in that posture God will be merciful, faithful to give us that which we do not deserve, friendship, life, a new beginning. As the worship team comes to sort of prepare us for our last moment of worship, I, I, I just want to leave you with this thought. I don't know why you came here today. I don't know how you got here. I don't know if you're a founding member of this church or you literally fell off the turnip truck on the road and wandered in and you're like, what, this isn't the township offices? I don't know how you got here today. I don't know what you were hoping to get out of this religious exercise. Perhaps you're only here because, I don't know, well, you're supposed to go to church. Well, the kids need religion or, I don't know, I'm just, I was raised doing this. And, or maybe you're trying to find your way back. The point is, this parable tells us it doesn't really matter. You may have walked in here with a strong faith in a Savior that you know pretty well. Or you may be arriving here today with nothing in your soul but brokenness, shame, sorrow, or regret. This story tells us that it doesn't matter. Your presence here today is not a mistake. It's not an accident. You came to this temple, so to speak, to pray something. What do you pray? What is your prayer? What do you want this morning? Do you want affirmation or restoration? Do you want respect or do you want forgiveness? Do you want justice or do you want mercy? Are you trying to save face or save your life? What do you want this morning? I don't know. But I will tell you what you need. This story tells us what we need. Whether a modern-day Pharisee or a modern-day publican, the need, all our need is the same. Lord, be merciful. And so I invite you today to believe, to hear the words of our Lord and believe. 
there is a fatherly embrace awaiting you, inviting you to release your regrets, your mistakes, to come to this temple, this altar, this period today with the faith that the prayer for mercy will not go unheard. Believe this morning, my friends, that with this God, you and I also can go home justified.